the godliest do not always live the longest. All mentioned in Genesis 5 stayed on earth a much greater time than did Enoch. 8. They who live with God hereafter must learn to please God ere they depart hence. 9. They who walk with God please Him. 10. They who please God shall not lack testimony thereof. But without faith it is impossible to please Him, for he that cometh to God must believe that He is, and that He is a rewarder of them that diligently seek Him. Verse 6 The Apostle had just spoken of Enoch's translation as a consequence of his pleasing God, and now from the fact of his pleasing God proves his faith. The adversative particle but is used to introduce a syllogism. The argument is framed thus. God himself had translated Enoch, who before his translation had pleased him, as his translation evidence. But without faith, it is impossible to please God. Therefore Enoch was, by faith, translated. Thus this declaration in verse 6 has special reference to the last clause in the verse preceding. The argument is drawn from the impossibility of the contrary, as it is impossible to please God without faith. And as Enoch received testimony that he did please God, then he must have had faith, a justifying and sanctifying faith. While there is an intimate relation between our present verse and the one immediately preceding, and while, as we shall yet see, the Lord willing, that it is closely connected with the case of Noah in verse 7, yet it also makes its own particular contribution onto the theme which the Apostle is here developing, supplying both a solemn warning and a blessed encouragement. The Holy Spirit still had before him the special need of the wavering Hebrews and would press upon them the fact that the great thing God required was not attendance on outward ordinances, but the diligence seeking unto him by a wholehearted trust. Where faith was missing, nothing could meet with his approval. But where faith really existed and was exercised, it would be richly rewarded. This principle is unchanging, so that the central message of our verse speaks loudly to us today and should search the heart of each one of us. But without faith, it is impossible to please him. Most solemnly do these words attest the total depravity of man. So corrupt is the fallen creature both in soul and body, in every power and part thereof, and so polluted is everything that issues from him that he cannot of and by himself do anything that is acceptable to the Holy One. So then, they that are in the flesh cannot please God. Romans 8, 8. 
They that are in the flesh means they that are still in their natural or unregenerate state. A bitter fountain cannot send forth sweet waters. But faith looks out of self to Christ, applies unto his righteousness, pleads his worth and worthiness, and does all things Godward in the name and through the mediation of the Lord Jesus. Thus, by faith, we may please God. But without faith it is impossible to please Him. Yet in all ages, there have been many who attempted to please God without faith. Cain began it, but failed woefully. All in their divine worship profess a desire to please God and hope that they do so. Why otherwise should they make the attempt? But as the Apostle declares in another place, many seek unto God, but not by faith, but as it were, by the works of the law. Romans 9.32 But where faith be lacking, let men desire, design, and do what they will, they can never attain unto divine acceptance. But to him that worketh not, but believeth on him that justifieth the ungodly, his faith is counted for unto righteousness. Romans 4, 5 Whatever be the necessity of other graces, faith is that which alone obtains acceptance with God. In order to please God, four things must concur all of which are accomplished by faith. First, the person of him that pleaseth God must be accepted of him. Genesis 4, 4. Second, the thing done that pleaseth God must be in accord with his will. Hebrews 13, 21. Third, the manner of doing it must be pleasing to God. It must be performed in humility, 1 Corinthians 15.10, in sincerity, Isaiah 38.3, in cheerfulness, 2 Corinthians 8.12 and 9.7. Fourth, the end in view must be God's glory, 1 Corinthians 10.31. Now faith is the only means whereby these four requirements are met. By faith in Christ, the person is accepted of God. Faith makes us submit ourselves to God's will. Faith causes us to examine the manner of what we do Godwards. Faith aims at God's glory. Of Abraham it is recorded that he was strong in faith, giving glory to God. Romans 4.20 how essential it is, then, that each of us examine himself diligently and make sure that he has faith. It is by faith the convicted and repentant sinner is saved. Acts 16.31 It is by faith that Christ dwells in the heart. Ephesians 3.17 It is by faith that we live. Galatians 2.20 It is by faith that we stand, Romans 11.20 and 2 Corinthians 1.24. It is by faith we walk, 
2 Corinthians 5.7 It is by faith the devil is successfully resisted. 1 Peter 5.8 and 9 It is by faith we are experimentally sanctified. Acts 26.18 It is by faith we have access to God. Ephesians 3.12 and Hebrews 10.22 It is by faith that we fight the good fight. 1 Corinthians 6.12 It is by faith that the world is overcome. 1 John 5.4 Hearer, are you certain that you have the faith of God's elect? Titus 1.1 If not, it is high time you made sure. For without faith, it is impossible to please God. Arthur Pink Continued in the November Studies. Study number three, The Life of David in the Cave of Adullam. At the close of the preceding article, we saw the backslider restored to communion with God. As David then wrote, Many are the afflictions of the righteous, most of them brought upon ourselves through sinful folly. But the Lord delivereth him out of them all. Psalm 34:19. Yet in his own good time. The hour had not yet arrived for our patriarch to ascend the throne. It would have been a simple matter for God to have put forth his power, destroyed Saul, and given his servant rest from all his foes. And this, no doubt, is what the energetic nature of David had much preferred. But there were other counsels of God to be unfolded before he was ready for the son of Jesse to wield the scepter. Though we are impulsive and impetuous, God is never in a hurry. The sooner we learn this lesson, the better for our own peace of mind. And the sooner shall we rest in the Lord and wait patiently for him. Psalm 37, 7. B.W. Newton said, God had designs other than the mere exaltation of David. He intended to allow the evil of Saul and of Israel to exhibit itself. He intended to give to David some apprehension of the character of his own heart and to cause him to learn subjection to a greater wisdom than his own. He intended also to prove the hearts of his own people Israel and to try how many among them would discern that the cave of Adullam was the only true place of excellency and honor in Israel. Unquote. Further discipline was needed by David if he was to learn deeper lessons of dependency upon God. Learn from this, dear hearer, that though God's delays are trying to flesh and blood, nevertheless, they are ordered by perfect wisdom and infinite love. For the vision is yet for an appointed time, but at the end it shall speak and not lie. Though it tarry, wait for it, because it will surely come. Habakkuk 
David therefore departed thence and escaped to the cave Adullam, 1 Samuel 22.1. Still a fugitive, David left the land of the Philistines and now took refuge in a large underground cavern, situated most probably not far from Bethlehem. To conceal himself from Saul and his bloodthirsty underlings, our hero betook himself to a cave. It is probable that the Holy Spirit made reference to this in Hebrews 11.38. The high favorites of heaven are sometimes to be located in clear and unexpected places. Joseph in prison, the descendants of Abraham laboring in the brick kilns of Egypt, Daniel in the lion's den, Jonah in the whale's belly, Paul clinging to a spar in the sea, forcibly illustrate this principle. Then let us not murmur because we do not now live in as fine a house as do some of the ungodly. Our mansions are in heaven. David therefore departed thence and escaped to the cave Adullam. It is blessed to learn how David employed himself at this time. Yet close searching has to be done before this can be ascertained. The Bible is no lazy man's book. Much of its treasure, like the valuable minerals stored in the bowels of the earth, only yield up themselves to the diligent seekers. Compare Proverbs 2, 1-5 by noting the superscriptions to the Psalms, which, with many others, we are satisfied are divinely inspired. We discover that two of them were composed by the sweet singer of Israel at this time. Just as the 34th casts its welcome light upon the close of 1 Samuel 21, so Psalm 57 and 142 illuminate the opening verses of 1 Samuel 22. The underground asylum of David made an admirable closet for prayer, its very solitude being helpful for the exercise of devotion. Well did C.H. Spurgeon say, Had David prayed as much in his palace as he did in his cave, he might never have fallen into the act which brought such misery upon his latter days. Unquote. We trust the spiritual hearer will at this point turn to and ponder the 57th and 142nd Psalms. In them he will perceive something of the exercises of David's heart. From them he may derive valuable instructions as to how to pray acceptably unto God in seasons of peculiar trial. A careful reading of the 57th Psalm will enable us to follow one who began it amid the gloomy shadows of the cavern, but from which he gradually emerged into the open daylight. So it often is in the experiences of the believer's soul. Perhaps the 142nd Psalm was composed by David before the 57th, 
certainly it brings before us one who was in deeper anguish of soul. Blessed indeed is it to mark the striking contrast from what is here presented to us and what was before us as we pass through 1 Samuel 20 and 21. There we saw the worried fugitive turning to Jonathan, flying to Abimelech, playing the madman at Gath. But vain was the hope of man. Yet how often we have to pass through these painful experiences and bitter disappointments before we thoroughly learn this lesson. Here we behold the son of Jesse turning to the only one who could do him any real good. I cried unto the Lord with my voice. I poured out my complaint before him. I showed before him my trouble. Verses 1 and 2. This is what we should do. Thoroughly unburden our hearts unto him with whom we have to do. Note how at the close of this psalm, after he had so freely poured out his woes, David exclaimed, Thou shalt deal bountifully with me. And Jonathan loved him as his own soul. All Israel and Judah loved David. 1 Samuel 18, 1 and 16. Now their love was tested. Now an opportunity was furnished them to manifest their affections for him. This was the hour of David's unpopularity. He was outlawed from the court, a fugitive from Saul. He was dwelling in a cave. Now was the time for devotion to David to be clearly exhibited. But only those who truly loved him could be expected to throw in their lot with an hated outcast. Strikingly is this illustrated in the very next words. And when his brethren and all his father's house heard it, they went down thither to him, 1 Samuel 22.1. Ah, true love is unaffected by the outward circumstances of its object. Where the heart is genuinely knit to another, a change in his fortunes will not produce a change in its affections. David might be, in the eyes of the world, in disgrace, but that made no difference to those who loved him. He might be languishing in a cavern, but that was all the more reason why they should show their kindness and demonstrate their unswerving loyalty. Among other things, this painful trial enabled David to discover who were and who were not his real friends. If we look beneath the surface here, the anointed eye should have no difficulty in discerning another striking and blessed type of David's son and lord. First, a type of him when he tabernacled among men in the days of his flesh. How fared it then with the anointed of God? By title, the throne of Israel was his, for he was born the king of the Jews, Matthew 2, 2. That God was with him was unmistakably evident. He too behaved himself wisely in all his ways. He too performed exploits, healing the sick, 
freeing the demon-possessed, feeding the hungry multitude, raising the dead. But just as Saul hated and persecuted David, so the heads of the Jews, the chief priests and Pharisees, were envious of and hounded Christ. Just as Saul thirsted for the blood of Jesse's son, the leaders of Israel at a later date thirsted for the blood of God's Son. The analogy mentioned might be drawn out at considerable length, but at only one other point will we here glance, namely the fact of the solemn foreshadowment furnished by David as first the friend and benefactor of his nation, now the poor outcast. Accurately did he prefigure that blessed one who when here was the man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, traced his path as the Holy Spirit has described it in the New Testament. Behold him as the unwanted one in this world of wickedness. Hear his plaintive declaration. The foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man hath not where to lay his head. Matthew 8.20 Read to, And every man went unto his own house. Jesus went unto the Mount of Olives. John 7.53 and 8.1 And it is evident that David's Lord was the homeless outcast in this scene. But were there none who appreciated him? None who loved him? None who were willing to be identified with and cast in their lot with him who was despised and rejected of men? Yes, there were some, and these, we believe, are typically brought before us in the next verse of the scripture we are now pondering. And every one that was in distress, and every one that was in debt, and every one that was discontented, gathered themselves unto him, 1 Samuel 22.2 What a strange company to seek unto God's anointed. No mention is made of the captains of the army, the men of state, the princes of the realm coming unto David. No, they, with all like them, preferred the court and the palace to the cave of Adullam. Is not the picture an accurate one, dear hearer? Is it not plain again that these Old Testament records furnish something more than historical accounts, that there is a typical and spiritual significance to them as well? If David be a type of Christ, then those who sought him out during the season of his humiliation must represent those who sought unto David's son when he sojourned on this earth. And clearly they did so. Read the four Gospels and it will be found that for the most part those who sought unto the Lord Jesus were the poor and needy. It was the lepers, the blind, the maimed and the halt who came unto him for help and healing. The rich and influential, the learned and the mighty, the leaders of the nation had no heart for him. But what is before us in the opening of 1 Samuel 22 
not only types out that which occurred during the earthly ministry of Christ, but it also shattered forth that which has come to pass all through this Christian era and that which is taking place today. As the Holy Spirit declared through Paul, For ye see your calling, brethren, how that not many wise men after the flesh, not many mighty, not many nobles, are called. But God hath chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. And God hath chosen the weak things of the world to confound the things which are mighty and base things of the world and things which are despised hath God chosen, yea, and things which are not, to bring to naught the things which are, that no flesh should glory in his presence. 1 Corinthians 1, 26-29 The second verse of 1 Samuel 22 sets before us a striking gospel picture. Note first that those who came to David were few in number, about 400. What a paltry retinue! What a handful compared with the hosts of Israel! But did Christ fare any better in the days of his flesh? How many friends stood around the cross, wept at his sepulchre, or greeted him as he burst the bars of death? How many followed him to Bethany, gazed at his ascending form, or gathered in the upper room to await the promised spirit? And how is it today? Of the countless millions of earth's inhabitants, what percentage of them have even heard the gospel? Out of those who bear his name, how many evidence that they are denying self, taking up their cross daily and following the example which he has left, and thus proving themselves by the only badge of discipleship which he will recognize? A discouraging situation, you say. Not at all. Rather, is it just what faith expects? The Lord Jesus declared that his flock is a little one, Luke 12.32, that only few tread that narrow way which leadeth unto life, Matthew 7.14. Second, observe again the particular type of people who sought out David. They were in distress, in debt, and discontented. What terms could more suitably describe the condition they are in when the redeemed first seek help from Christ? In debt, in all things, we had come short of the glory of God. In thought, word, and deed, we had failed to please him, and there was marked up against us a multitude of transgressions. In distress, who can tell out that anguish of soul which is experienced by the truly convicted of the Holy Spirit? Only the one who has actually experienced the same knows of that unspeakable horror and sorrow when the heart first perceives the frightful enormity of having defiled the infinite majesty of heaven, trifled with his long-suffering, slighted his mercy again and again, 
discontented. Yes, this line in the picture is just as accurate as the others. The one who has been brought to realize he is a spiritual pauper and who is now full of grief for his sins is discontented with the very things which till recently pleased him. Those pleasures which fascinated now Paul. That gay society which once attracted now repels. Oh, the emptiness of the world to a soul which God hath smitten with a sense of sin. The stricken one turns away with disgust from that which he had formerly sought after so eagerly. There is now an aching void within which nothing without can fill. So wretched is the convicted sinner he wishes he were dead, yet is terrified at the very thought of death. Hearer, do you know anything of such an experience, or is all this the language of an unknown tongue to you? Third, these people who were in debt, in distress and discontented, sought out David. They were the only ones who did so. It was a deep sense of need which drove them to him, and a hope that he could relieve them. So it is spiritually. None but those who truly feel that they are paupers before God, with no good thing to their credit, absolutely destitute of any merits of their own, will appreciate the glad tidings that Christ Jesus came into this world to pay the death of such. Only those who are smitten in their conscience, broken in heart and sick of sin, will really respond to that blessed word of His, Come unto me all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Only those who have lost all heart for this poor world will truly turn unto the Lord of glory. Fourth, the spiritual picture we are now contemplating is not only a type of the first coming to Christ of His people, but also of their subsequent going forth unto Him without the camp. Hebrews 13.13 Those who saw David in the cave of Adullam turned their backs upon both the court of Saul and the religion of Judaism. There was none to pity them there. Who cared for penniless paupers? Who had a heart for those in distress? So it is in most of the churches today. Those who are poor in spirit have nothing in common with the self-satisfied Laodiceans. And how distressed in soul are they over the worldliness that has come in like a flood, over the crowds of unregenerate members, over the utter absence of any scriptural discipline. And what is to be the attitude and actions of God's grieved children toward those having nothing more than a form of godliness? This, from such, turn away. Second Timothy 3.5 Identify yourself with Christ on the outside. Walk alone with Him. Fifth, 
and he became a captain over them. 1 Samuel 22.2 Important and striking line in the picture is this. Christ is to be received as Lord. Colossians 2.6 If he is to be known as Savior. Love to Christ is to be evidenced by keeping his commandments. John 14.15 It mattered not what that strange company had been who sought unto David, they were now his servants and soldiers. They had turned away from the evil influence of Saul to be subject unto the authority of David. This is what Christ requires from all who identify themselves with him. Take my yoke upon you is his demand. Matthew 11:29 nor need we shrink from it, for he declares, My yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Arthur Pink Continued in the November Studies Study number four Feeble Faith And the Apostle said unto the Lord, Increase our faith, Luke 18.5 Did the apostles need so to pray? Then well may I. O thou great author and finisher of our faith, I would look up unto thee with thankfulness that thou hast granted even the smallest portion of faith to so unworthy a creature as I am. Surely my soul it is as great a miracle of grace that my God and Savior should have kindled belief in thy stony heart amidst all the surrounding obstructions of sin and Satan which lay there. As when miraculous fire from heaven in answer to the prophet's prayer came down and consumed the wetted sacrifice. I praise thee, my God and King, this day in the recollection of this unspeakable, unmerited mercy. And though this faith in my heart still be but as a grain of mustard seed, though it be but as a spark in the ocean, though it be but as the drop of dew in comparison of the river, yet blessed, precious Jesus, still this is faith, and it is thy gift, and is it not a token of thy favor? Is it not an earnest of the Holy Spirit and a pledge of the promised inheritance? Babes in faith as well as strong in the Lord are equally thine. For it is said that as many as were ordained to eternal life believed. Acts 13.48 And to as many as believed Thou gavest power to become the sons of God. So it is by thyself, blessed Redeemer, and not by the strength or weakness of the faith of thy people, their justification before God the Father is secure. Precious is the scripture which tells us that by thee all that believe, whether great faith or little faith, all that believe are justified from all things. Acts 13.39 But my soul, 
while the consciousness of thy possessing the smallest evidences of faith in thy beloved gives thee joy unspeakable and full of glory, dost thou not blush to think what ungrateful returns thou art making to thy Redeemer in the littleness of thy faith in such a God and Savior? Whence is it that thine affections are so warm in a thousand lesser things and so cold toward Christ? Whence that his holy word thou so often hearest as though thou heardest not? Whence the ordinances of Jesus' house, the promises of his scriptures, the visits of his grace, whence these pass again and again before thee, and thou remainest so cold and lifeless in thy affections. Whence that the temptations of Satan, the corruptions of thine heart, the allurements of the world, gain any influence upon thee. Whence that thou art so anxious about things that perish, about anything, about nothing, deserving to be called interesting. Whence so seldom at the court of the heavenly king, where thou oughtest to be found daily, hourly, waiting, and whence under trials, or the want of answers at a mercy seat, fretful, impatient, and misgiving. Whence all these and numberless other evils, but from the weakness and littleness of thy love to Christ, and thy trust in Christ, and thy dependence upon Christ, and thy communion with Christ. All, all arise out of this one sad cause, my soul, thine unbelief. Jesus, Master, look upon me, put the cry with earnestness within my heart, that I may unceasingly, with the Apostle's prayer, be sending forth this as the first and greatest petition of my whole soul. Lord, increase my faith. Robert Hawkers, 1825 Study number 5, Assurance Part 2, Its Basis The task which these articles set before us is by no means easily executed. On the one hand, we wish to be kept from taking the children's bread and casting it to the dogs. On the other, it is our earnest prayer that we may be delivered from casting a stumbling block before any of God's little ones. That which occasions our difficulty is the desire to expose an empty profession and to be used of God in writing that which, under His free spirit, may be used in removing the scales from the eyes of those who, though unregenerate, are resting with carnal confidence on some of the divine promises given to those who are in Christ. For while a sinner is out of Christ, none of the promises belong to him. See Second Corinthians 1.20 Notwithstanding, it behooves us to seek wisdom from above so that we may write in such a way that any of Christ who are yet unestablished in the faith may not draw the conclusion they are still dead in trespasses and sins. 
Having before us this twofold object, let us ask the question, is a simple faith in Christ sufficient to save a soul for time and eternity? At the risk of some hearers turning away from this article and refusing to read further, we unhesitatingly answer, no, it is not. The Lord Jesus himself declared, except ye repent, ye shall all likewise perish. Luke 13.3 Repentance is just as essential to salvation as is believing. Again we read that Wilt thou know, O vain man, that faith without works is dead? James 2.20 A simple faith which remains alone, a faith which does not purify the heart, Acts 15.9, work by love, Galatians 5.6, and overcome the world, 1 John 5.4, will save nobody. Much confusion has been caused in many quarters through failure to define clearly what it is from which the sinner needs saving. Only too often the thought of many minds is restricted to hell. But that is a very inadequate conception and often proves most misleading. The only thing which can ever take any creature to hell is unrepented an unforgiven sin. Now on the very first page of the New Testament, the Holy Spirit has particularly recorded it that the incarnate Son of God was named Jesus because He shall save His people from their sins. Matthew one twenty one. Why is it that that which God has placed at the forefront is regulated to the rear by most of modern evangelists. To ask a person if he has been saved from hell is much more ambiguous than to inquire if he has been saved from his sins. Let us attempt to enlarge on this a little. But thousands of professing Christians in these days have but the vaguest idea of what it means to be saved from sin. First, it signifies to be saved from the love of sin. The heart of the natural man is wedded to everything which is opposed to God. He may not acknowledge it. He may not be conscious of it. Yet such is the fact nevertheless having been shaped in iniquity and conceived in sin, Psalm 51.5, man cannot but be enamored with that which is now part and parcel of his very being. When the Lord Jesus explained why condemnation rests upon the unsaved, he declared, men loved darkness rather than light, John 3.19. Nothing but a supernatural change of heart can deliver any from this dreadful state. Only an omnipotent Redeemer can bring us to abhor Job 42.6 ourselves and loathe iniquity. This He does when He saves a soul. For the fear of the Lord is to hate evil. 
Proverbs 8.13 Second, to be saved from our sins is to be delivered from the allowance of them. It is the unvarying tendency of the natural heart to excuse evil doing, to extenuate and gloss over it. At the beginning, Adam declined to acknowledge his guilt and sought to throw the blame upon his wife. It was the same with Eve. Instead of honestly acknowledging her wickedness, she attempted to place the onus on the serpent. But how different is the regenerated person's attitude toward sin. For that which I do, I allow not. Romans 7.15 Paul committed sin, but he did not approve, still less did he seek to vindicate it. He disclaimed all friendliness toward it. Nay more, the real Christian repents of his wrongdoing, confesses it to God, mourns over it, and prays earnestly to be kept from a repetition of the same. Pride, coldness, slothfulness he hates. Yet day by day he finds them reasserting their power over him. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reform books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D, M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, 
that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.